This is Dmitry Samarov, a painter and writer in Chicago, Illinois. And you're listening to Blather, a show about art and God knows what else. A couple of years ago, uh, when I was editing my 2021 book, Old Style, I recorded a bunch of uh, rough draft chapters and posted them uh, in the early iteration of this show. Now I've brought them all together uh, under in one uh, convenient package. Uh, look in the show notes for the timestamps for the different chapters. Enjoy. <laughs> It's not how it used to be. It never was. The western flyover went down quick. Built to ease traffic around Riverview Park, it had, in recent times, become a rundown eyesore. The park, where so many Chicago children rode roller coasters, ate cotton candy, went on first dates, was bulldozed and gone 50 years back when the wreckers came. I watched the machines whacking away at the concrete of the pockmarked bridge until the rebar sticks out all over like frayed nerve endings. A small crowd gathers to gawk. A fat man shimmies up a nearby light pole and furiously snaps photos. I stand back a bit, closer to the Marathon Station, where American United Taxi used to be. In a year, this gas station will be gone. The building across the street where the Chicago Dispatcher cabbie newspaper in a greasy spoon called The Point was, is now an empty lot behind a chain-link fence. As each structure disappears, bits and pieces of my history follow. What's left of these places is mutable and grows fuzzier each time I remember. Without the buildings as proof, the time I spent in them feels made up. It's the whipping wind doesn't say Jimna Pivo like so many around Chicago. Just blue light. The bar stands where the northern end of the overpass used to be. A typical Chicago two-story building, with an apartment upstairs and a business at street level. The blue light was a corner bar in the middle of a block. After 9-11, the jukebox was full of America will put a boot in your ass songs. But they would have been on there even if the Twin Towers still stood. The blue light was a dump, the kind of place where promotional Budweiser ads hang dusty and fraying decades after the beer reps dropped them off, years after what they advertised was no longer on the market. These posters were the decor because the owners didn't care about what their bar looked like and because they were free decoration. But the day I watched the overpass come down, the blue light is no longer that blue light. There's now a big picture window and exposed brick walls inside. The bar is now along the north wall of the room rather than the south, the way it was in my day. Also, many flat screen TVs. Peering in, it's clear it's been out of business for some time. I haven't been inside since long before Sharon and Kenny sold it. 
I think back a few years to when I dropped off a couple here in my cab. They were fighting the whole way. She started flirting with me, asking if I'd park the cab and go in with her. She was doing it to piss off her boyfriend, but it came off as a perfect example of what the blue light had always been. A dark place where men and women go to treat each other badly. I did my best to suit the guy's ego as I let the couple out into the oversized mitts of the gorilla guarding the door. This is definitely not my blue light. Sharon and Kenny were way too cheap to hire a bouncer. I got lead in my pencil, but no one to write to. The punchline of Wes's favorite Viagra joke. He tells it every time. I'm thankful to pretend to laugh because it's one of the few in Wes's repertoire which doesn't involve the word nigger. Wes is built like a fire hydrant, a squat bald man who fancies himself a real cut-up. He's a doorman at a big apartment building. When he isn't bitching about the rich people who live there, he's ragging on his co-workers. All worthless niggers, according to Wes. A couple hours and a dozen Miller lights in, he gets weepy. Asks if I ever met Gail, his dead ex-wife. Wes is my favorite regular at the blue light. I turn away from the bar's darkened facade and to where the overpass used to end. I can see across Western Avenue now, to the sprawling cop station across the street. When I worked here, I'd listened for car and motorcycle engines idling, then cutting out, as regulars parked underneath the ramp. I see Timmy the cabbie's American United Crown Vic left angled, while every other car is perpendicular to the roadway. He's inside, trying to mooch a dollar stein of old style off Wes or Bill or one of the others. Timmy's face is scuffed and scratched like he'd used it to screech to a halt outside the bar to save the cab's brakes. I see Bill's behemoth, Harley, tassels, detailing, storage racks and all. Hard to believe it never collapsed under that mountain of a man after he walked out of the bar, a case of Miller Lite augmenting his prodigious gut. Sue's out there, her SUV idling as she talks on herself. She's still in her Wrigley garb. She'll run inside in a minute or two, breathless, ready to get behind the bar, or sit and drink with her girlfriends if it's her night off. Tommy used to sleep in the underpass sometimes. I see him out there, near closing time, waiting to come in to mop the floors in exchange for bottomless old style. Tommy was the first one I got to know at the blue light after sharing. I see the shithead I cut off earlier in the night, loitering in the shadows, waiting for me to come out after I've thrown away the empties. Does he have a gun? A knife? A bunch of his deadbeat pals posseed up to kick my ass? I knew about Riverview Park long before I got to Chicago. I read about it in a book. It's where Lefty Bicek takes Steffi on their date before leaving her in a basement to get gang raped by guys he's known all his life. Now there's a cop station in a strip mall where the park used to be. Cops came into the blue light and put their service weapons on the bar before ordering frosty mugs of old style. 
I wonder if they kept coming once it changed hands and the flat screen TVs were installed. I have no idea what kind of bar it became, but I doubt it was one where it was okay to put a gun down next to your drink. All that was 20 years ago. Now I work at a different bar across town. My life is totally different. Don lived upstairs from the blue light. His brill cream gray hair was neatly trimmed, buzz cut close to the ears, 50s style. His wife had died recently, but he was keeping it together. He worked in manufacturing, printing plant, tool and dye shop. I never found out exactly. Don was a man of few words. He came in every day after work. He'd order one dollar stein of old style and drink it in silence, then order another. Halfway through that one, he might stammer out a word or two. Few conversations with Don lasted more than a couple moments. Still, bit by bit, I got a partial picture of his life. He had cats. He missed his wife. Then he lost his job and everything changed. He never said why he got laid off. He didn't talk about it. He started showing up at the bar earlier in the afternoon. I could chart his disintegration from day to day. His hair went first. No more haircuts, scraggly, uncombed. Then his checked flannel shirts weren't tucked in anymore. He developed a limp. Soon he was drifting off, eyelids drooping. Slumped sideways on his bar stool, a long skein of drool inching glacially toward the bar top. I hated to jostle him, seeing he was in such a bad way, but I couldn't have people sleeping at the bar. Fast forward, and he was at half speed. My words didn't reach him right away. He'd slow-mo off his stool and inch toward the door. The last time I saw Don, his pants were soiled. He'd piss himself sitting catatonic over a half-finished old style. His speech slurred to the point of rarely completing a phrase. He'd keep trying, then he'd start over, then give up. I didn't have the heart to kick him out. Luckily, there was rarely anyone but regulars in the place when he was in. I didn't see Don for a few days, then started asking around. No one had seen him. Kenny went upstairs and broke down the door. Pizza boxes, newspapers, and unwashed clothes formed hills and towers in his rooms. Don lay dead on the kitchen floor, his face eaten away in places, teeth marks still visible. The cats hadn't been fed in a week. Inez comes into the albatross to ask about Ray. Inez lives in Texas and knows Ray's brother. He showed her some of Ray's art 
and Inez is hooked. Now she wants to write something about it. That's why she's here. It's causing me to think about someone I don't like to think about. When her brother wrote me about her death seven years ago, I'd been out of touch with Ray a long time. I had to cut her out of my life. She caused a lot of damage. Or, more accurately, my knowing her had. My connection to her had contributed to the end of her marriage, the cancellation of mine, dozens of failed friendships, and more hurt feelings, confusion, and drama than I can account for. Now, a bright-eyed new person has appeared to dredge up what I thought was dead and buried. And yet, I try to answer all the questions Inez asks. In answering, I realize how little I know about someone I thought I knew too well. I met Ray through her then-boyfriend, ex-husband-to-be, at Hoax Coffee. They'd recently moved to Chicago from California, and he was concerned that she didn't have any friends in their new town. He knew I made art, so Ray and I would have something to talk about. She waited tables at Leo's lunchroom down the street, but apart from bumming cigarettes off me, she rarely said a word. Soon. After Cal introduced us, she was making covert dinner plans with me. I didn't understand why the f fact we were going for pasta at Club Lucky had to be kept a secret, but soon learned that if Ray wasn't scheming or setting people in her life against each other, she didn't feel alive. I played along because I realized it was the price of admission. It was fascinating watching her gears turn. She never stopped spinning fantasies. She told workers at Leo's she had cancer when she didn't. Told me and others her oldest brother was dead when he wasn't. Even when caught in a bald-faced lie, she rarely acknowledged it. She'd massage and massage her explanations until we either gave up or forgot about it. We knew she couldn't live without her lies. I took any childhood story she told as a fairy tale. So it was a surprise when I eventually met her parents and one of her brothers. I just assumed she'd made them all up. Some of the things she said about them were even true. Ray and Cal broke up for a time and she moved in with me. She immediately took up with one of Cal's co-workers at the coffee shop. Kurt was a blackout drunk. I remember carrying him up the stairs with my next door neighbor Liam after Kurt had passed out on his porch, mistaking his house for ours. I had to throw out a love seat because he'd soaked it with his urine and Ray had to get rubber sheets for her bed because he pissed himself nightly. Then Ray reconciled with Cal and they got married. I wasn't invited to the wedding. We kept in touch, though. I watched her re invent and reinvent herself. She knew she could count on me, which meant that I got tangled up in her drama. Shiva and I made plans to marry during this time. And Shiva used uh, my relationship with Ray as one of the reasons for leaving me. Cal hated me. The day I drove a car full of Shiva's belongings down south to where she'd moved, 
Cal chased the car down the street, threatening to beat me up. I just laughed and kept driving. When I crossed the Texas border, it was raining sideways, so hard the wipers couldn't keep up and skies were black. Every rest stop was full of stopped vehicles. I found out the next day I was within a few miles of a tornado. Back in Chicago, Ray started cooking for the Archdiocese and we resumed our weird relationship. Through the church, she met an old rich man who became fixated on her. He eventually moved her into his downtown condo. But she was never happy with just one man's attention. She posed for me one afternoon, and on a break from working, we started messing around. If her roommate hadn't walked in, who knows what might have been. But afterwards, she got shy and said it had been a mistake. We never finished the painting, but... Another old man bought it, as is, for $500 in order to curry favor with her. I was happy to be rid of it and to take his money. Ray always drank like a fish. Red wine was her poison and she'd drink bottles, rarely eating much aside from dry toast or popcorn. I'd insist we go out for dinner because that was the only way she'd eat properly. Eventually, her daughters told her she was on the brink of liver failure. She stopped working, letting the old men take care of her. Then she moved back to California. But by then, I'd stopped answering her phone calls. My mother called her an emotional vampire, and maybe that's what she was. I'd reclaimed music as my own in, in the years after my involvement with Ray ended. I could listen to Cat Power, Smog, and Silver Jews and not immediately remember her playing them on repeat behind her closed bedroom door. Since Inez got in touch, when I put one of them on, Ray's there again. I tell Inez that I don't care much for Ray's art. It was always a sore point for her. She knew I didn't like her dramatic birds beneath crackling varnish or her tormented self-portraits. I found them as phony as most of her stories. But Yvette is convinced Ray's art is worth celebrating. Inez tells me Ray's brother is no longer cooperating with her. Seems his new fiance is uncomfortable with their friendship. So Ray's legacy of ruining relationships survives her. I doubt Inez will come up with enough for a substantive biographical document. Most of the people who knew Ray around here are long gone. The places she worked are changed or, or no longer exist. I dig up some correspondence and postcards I'd saved and give them to Inez for her research. It's good to be rid of them. Maybe Inez can write a fairy tale about a scary thin girl with long blonde hair who liked to tell tall tales. That would be a fitting tribute.
Folly greeted me at the door like a long-lost friend. Her eyes, divots in her boulder-like pitbull head, took me in as if from centuries past. Her welcome told me I was in the right place. It was my second date with Callie, 4th of July, an unbearably humid Chicago summer night. Callie's block was a war zone of fireworks. A haze hung over the whole street. But upstairs, after I closed the door, I barely noticed the explosions. Or, rather, they seemed to be muffled, as if miles away, rather than directly under the window. I don't know if it was Callie's willful magic or a side effect of attraction. I met Callie at a party I meant to avoid, a fundraiser for a film magazine I used to write for. I felt an obligation. My plan was to poke my head in, wave hello if I saw a familiar face, throw a few bucks in the hat and get out of there. Then I saw her. I'd biked past the building a million times, but never been inside. A lonesome structure along an overpass, surrounded by multiple rail railroad tracks. The Amtrak yard sat to the north, giving on to the Chicago skyline. The building had housed some industrial concern at one time. Now it was a rabbit warren of art studios, small businesses, and marginally kosher live workspaces. My destination was a film post-production facility. There was a bottleneck by the door. A woman at a table was soliciting donations in exchange for raffle tickets. A group bunched up by the narrow entryway, agonizing which prize to donate for. Beyond them, I could see the room filled with people. Anxiety spiked. I knew I'd only last minutes. Maybe just drop a few bucks in the jar and turn around and leave. Then I saw her. She stood just beyond the donation table, next to a couch that was likely a family cast-off. An old man was chivalrously offering to refresh her a glass of wine. She glowed. Or, perhaps... Everyone around her looked half-lit by comparison. A light floral summer dress and cork-heeled sandals showed off toenails painted seafoam green. Dark auburn hair, likely a dye job, took nothing away from her beauty. Her face, once she turned my way, was stunningly asymmetrical, almost cubist. Modigliani come to life. The old gent returned with a plastic glass of white wine bowed and turned to greet someone he knew. I sat down on the couch and she sat down next to me. She asked what brought me here. She said she didn't know why she was here, then remembered a friend had invited her. Her job was picking music for movies. She'd been in this space before for work. I told her I'd just written a book about music and pulled out a copy from my bag. A smile spread across her mouth as she flipped the pages. She insisted on buying it. We kept talking when she wasn't looking through the book. Her praise was effusive, outsized, almost like she was putting me on. Callie's friend arrived. She wrote down her number, said she wanted to see me again, then turned away. I walked over to where the raffle prizes were. DVDs, posters, and gift certificates for classic movies. I couldn't focus on any of it. 
I looked out the window at the Chicago skyline in a daze. I snuck a few looks her way, but didn't try to meet her eye. I didn't want the spell to break. I left without talking to anyone else. We made a date for Saturday. She wanted to try a bar in my neighborhood. I agreed without saying I hated the place. This isn't what I imagined, she said, looking around. The bar had a reputation as a place for cool kids, but was in fact a haven for tattooed douchebags training for yuppiedom. I suggested we walk down to the Albatross. She didn't realize it was so close. She'd taken an Uber to meet me. I'd soon learned she had absolutely no sense of direction. Our conversation was easy, like we knew one another in a long time. Because I work at the Albatross, Callie asked whether bringing her there would be awkward, like inviting someone to meet family. There could be judgment, the stakes raised. I told her, of course, I wanted to show her off. She told me about the abusive ex now in jail for attempting uh, to kill the woman he was with after Callie, about fetishes, about her engulfing love of music. Every now and then she'd pause, embarrassed at all she'd revealed. I asked her to go on. I wanted to know everything. She'd come to Chicago a few years earlier, hired as a backup singer for a local hip-hop producer. When it became clear the job offer was just a chance to get in her pants, she quit and struck out on her own, eventually landing a gig scoring an indie film. Now she spends her days searching cyberspace for sounds to match images. Walking her home from the bar was when I learned her inner compass was out of whack. Though she lived a few blocks away, she insisted her place was in the opposite direction from where I knew it to be. After convincing her to trust me, we were at her door in minutes. Kiss goodnight. I don't remember how I got home. We worried how Folly would handle the violent bursts. She'd cower from time to time, but seemed to be holding it together. I watched Callie finish cooking our dinner. We talked, drank wine. It felt like a fairy tale. The decor was just so. A physical manifestation of her extreme care and taste. I could tell Callie spent most of her time the last years creating these enchanted rooms. She turned from the stove now and then and smiled at me, then quickly looked away. I never wanted to leave. After dinner, we moved to the living room. She played records and told me about her family, the history of mental illness, her grandfather in Paris who changed his last name from his Russian Jewish given one to the French word for remember, or was it recall? I took out the pad of paper I'd brought and asked her to sit still. She'd never posed for a painter before and said she hated every photograph ever taken of her. Called herself unphotogenic. As I worked, I kept trying to catch her eye. They met mine, then flitted away like birds, momentarily alighting on a branch only to fly away at the slightest gust. She looked at the charcoal when I was done and acted flattered, said it was what she felt she looked like. I asked if she'd been uncomfortable posing, 
what would make her more at ease. She suggested taking off her clothes, but only if I did the same. She went into her bedroom. I'd shed all I had on before she had a chance to shut the door. She returned minutes later, lay down on the floor near my chair, and took a deep breath and opened her robe. We locked eyes whenever I wasn't looking at the drawing. It felt like these glances lasted hours. I wanted to disappear into the point where our eyes met. After I couldn't work anymore, I lay down next to her. Kelly was out of town for work the following week. We went to the movies when she got back, then to the Albatross for drinks. I talked her into a photo booth, into the photo booth. Despite her insistence, she never took a good picture. I'm looking at the photo strip now. In the ones where one of us isn't blinking, we look so happy. She wanted to see my place. It had been years since a woman had slept in my bed. I got new sheets, cleaned the bathroom, tried to make my hovel habitable. I warned her I had nothing on her where homemaking was concerned. She was excited anyway. She took it in with the same wonder I'd taken in hers. We drank and listened to records. Then she changed and sat in my armchair to pose for a painting. It went wrong from the start. While we locked eyes as before, the picture was stillborn and ugly. She snuck a look before I was done and couldn't hide her disappointment. I wrestled with it for another hour, then we went to bed. She called herself my girlfriend. We went to sleep in each other's arms. In the morning, we went to the coffee shop for breakfast. She was distant, but not unhappy. She kissed me goodbye, promising to see me soon. I never saw her or heard from her again. I knew she didn't care for text or email. After hearing nothing from her for two weeks, I decided to appeal to metaphysical forces. On a clear night, I climbed onto my roof and set the cursed portrait from our last night on fire. A sacrifice to return me to Callie's good graces. It felt good to be rid of the horrible thing. It It had taunted me, reminding me of failure and heartbreak. To watch it turn to dust and be blown away by a lazy breeze was a relief. But if Callie was affected by my little ritual, I never knew about it. My last texter asked if she was alive. Crickets. As weeks turned to months, I convinced myself Callie was a figment of my imagination, a fantasy conjured by a lonely man. But then the Albatross calendar came out. The bar makes a collage of photo booth pictures to mark each passing year. There we are, mid-smile, close together, in love for all the world to see. I rolled the calendar into a tube, slipped a note wishing her a happy new year, and left it on Callie's doorstep.
Bartender, Polish speaking, personality, sober, six nights, steady, no mixed drinks. Lon pulls out an oversized scrapbook. Yellowed newspaper clippings jet out from between the pages where they've waited for decades to be pasted in. Lon starts a dozen projects a night but never completes any. Today he's excited because he retrieved the scrapbook from the alley where Lori left it for him, for the trash man to pick up. He's happy he beat the garbage truck and rescued it. He turns and turns the pages, ads and articles raining down on the bar top like lazy snowflakes. They settle haphazardly about him. Many will remain just where they are for days, weeks, months. Then he'll happen upon one or another and become rapturous, insisting it's it's the exact thing he's been looking for. Then the feeling passes and the scrap settles on some other surface to be forgotten again. Some of his treasures go through this discovery neglect cycle many times over. Each and every time they're the most important thing ever, until they're not. He wants to show me the ads his mother placed in the paper for barmaids, musicians, bartenders, and the like. Some go back to the 40s. Waitress, white, attract, single, for cocktail lounge, six nights, easy work, age 24 to 40, one dollar an hour. Piano player, young lady, or guitar or banjo, play on request. Musician, piano accordion, German or Lithuanian speaking, must be good for weekends. Then they change. No more cocktail waitresses or accordionists uh, needed anymore. She's selling the bar. Tavern, Rose's Albatross. Well, a stab, good business. You will not be sorry if you buy this place. Widow aged, retiring. I ask Lon when this one's from, but he doesn't know. Decades ago, for sure. His father died and she tried to get rid of the place. But she's still here living a thin wall away from where we're sitting. Lon is terrified of her. They avoid each other. Communicate primarily via cell phone, even though they're rarely separated by more than a few feet. Bartender, Lithuanian speaking, middle age. Married to work in a nice place, 7 p.m. to 4 a.m. Or rent to good, honest man. No drinking. Must have good refs. This is how Rose and Lon's father met. He used to be her father's tavern. He died, so she took over. Jack answered her ad for a bartender. He wasn't married but filled all her other requirements. She rented him a room upstairs, down the hall from her own. He took to visiting her, hers, after mopping up the floors and throwing away the empties around 5 a.m. 
She was eight months pregnant with Lon's older brother when they went down to City Hall to make it official. Lon's memories of Jack are hazy, rose-colored. He passed when uh, Lon was still in high school, training to become a draftsman. He dropped out to help Rose with the bar. He has nothing bad to say about the old man, but still blames him for leaving him him for leaving him to this fate. Running a bar in the same building he's lived all his life wasn't Lon's dream. Tavern fixtures for sale. Front and back bar. Good condition. Two years old. Ten foot work board in sync with the refrigerated section. Beer tap. GE reach-in white enameled refrigerator, 30 by 76 by 66, bar stools, tables, chairs, booths. They're all still here. She never found a buyer. I wonder what she planned to do after getting rid of it all. She probably had dreams too. Instead she stayed. She comes out of her room sometimes after I close the bar. She looks in the coolers to make sure I restock the bottles and cans. She opens the ice maker door and squints up inside to see if it's making ice. If Lon is down here already, he acts put out, like a teenager being checked on. He doesn't look her way. His answers to her questions are pissy, monosyllabic. After she disappears, he launches into a tirade about how she doesn't trust him to do anything, how she controls his life. He would never believe the man is pushing 60. Widow, alone, can't handle. Whatever Rose needed was missing. After Jack passed, she never got through her want ads, but she kept placing them. Some of the ones preserved in Lon's scrapbook have dates. They range from the 40s to the 70s. What made her stop trying and retreat to the room behind the stage with the flat screen TV? Lon says she remarried three or four times after Jack. He doesn't tell me his stepfather's names, whether they worked at the bar, how long they lasted. Only that Rose could turn heads well into her 60s. He admires her, loves her, but she terrifies him. He's still the little boy trying to please her. He was never her favorite. Jim, his older brother, can do no wrong in her eyes. Jim's a fuck-up who wrecked a motorcycle, which left him with a leg he drags around like dead weight. He rarely visits. When he does come by, he gets hammered at the bar and hits on any woman who will let him for the price of a draft beer. He's hateful to Lon, mocks him for never leaving home. It expects his share from the till. Death and family forces sale. There were no takers, so Lon and Rose are still here. One day they'll both be gone, but there will be no more ads in the paper about the albatross. 
Nobody sells anything in the newspaper anymore. The building and all that's in it will be listed on some real estate website, maybe pieced out through virtual flea markets and bargain bins. The rest will be hauled away for salvage. The structure leveled to make way for glass and drywall dream homes. No one wants what Rose has been trying to sell for longer than anyone can remember. Innocent when you dream. Lon's a hat guy. It's not because of the bald spot, or not only because of it. It's his self-image. He sees himself as a doomed romantic hep cat. On open mic nights at the Albatross, he breaks out his harmonica and ukulele. Innocent when you dream is his go-to. When he's done singing, he talks the nearest woman onto the dance floor and holds her too close as they turn to the music in the narrow space between the bar stools and the stage. They don't push him away, but few stay for a second dance. Lon once ran into Tom Waits. It was at Wise Fool's Pub on the north side. If he told me the year, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It's, be it's become origin, story, and myth. Lon was still drinking back then. It was late, probably after Wade's gig someplace in town. Lon sees him, him come in and battles with himself to keep cool. Doesn't want to lose his shit in front of his hero. Asks the bartender to send Waits a shot. When it's poured, Waits looks Lon's way, nods in appreciation, then waves him over. Waits says he's off the hard stuff, sips a beer instead. Lon gets a faraway look telling me this story. There's no ending, but it's as if he's still there drinking with weights as decades drag by. Any guy in a fedora or pork pie hat and a vintage shirt is a weights wannabe on first glance. He didn't invent or patent the look, but he's the one I think of. Most women roll their eyes when they see one of these guys. It's such a fallback affectation. It implies a longing for a white bread yesterday. Not that every guy in the throwback duds is a woman-hating racist, but that retro shit leaves a sour aftertaste. In a neighborhood that used to be notorious for white hate, the albatross is a beacon of welcome to all colors and creeds. But Lon can't rid himself completely of the bigotry of his upbringing. His people battled for their place in the new land, sometimes stepping on others to do so. The fact they were treated badly when they got here doesn't stop them from treating others the same way. I love a lot of that old-timey shit, too. Can't help it. I just can't commit to wearing period garb. Dressing like a noir extra is kind of funny, and uh, Lon doesn't really pull it off. He doesn't smoke and quit drinking years ago. 
It's not period correct if it doesn't reek of palm oils and rye. So what does it mean to adopt some parts of the past and discard others? I hear we're past history now. The web makes everything from any time available at, at a keystroke. Is there a when anymore? If you can mix and match with no context, do any of the parts retain any of their old meaning? Waits always knew his look was a pose. He played with it, mutated and remixed it over the years. But like Jesus, his apostles spread his gospel to the letter. It became a lifestyle with its own strict rules. It doesn't take much to start a religion. A new one's hatched every other day. Lon's saving grace is his inconsistency. He doesn't have the discipline to be a true believer. He just wants the dream to be real because his every day is rarely enough. Like most insomniacs, he's often half asleep with his eyes wide open. <laughs>